You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. It's been a while since we've been in the series, but we're into it again this evening. It's 21st Century Guide to the New Testament, and it is the series of introductions. So we've gone through from one introduction of one book to the next, and we are now tonight in the book of Second Peter. And I've called this book, Be Mindful to Grow. And I was thinking this week, as we think about our church, we're doing some planning for what this year is going to look like. We're looking at different sermon series and things that we should cover in our church and what would be good for our people. And the goal of all of it is so that we'll grow. We want to grow in our relationship and our maturity in our Christian walk. And when you look at Peter's book, and this is the only second letter that we have that Peter wrote, but it's the final letter Peter writes, and he writes it soon before he dies. And he's got this passion in his heart to see the people he's writing to grow, that they need to mature. And I wonder if sometimes in our churches we lose that zeal. I mean, we know it's kind of like out there, it should happen, but I wonder if in our own lives we're actually passionately pursuing growth. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you think about that in your life? You say, what do I need to do to grow? What areas should I be working on right now? What do I need to improve on? How am I getting God's word into my heart and life? Because we do, we must realize that our culture is always bombarding us with false beliefs, false worldview. And we say words like, oh, Christians are being attacked, or the Christian worldview is being attacked. And we don't, in North America, we don't mean literally Christians are being attacked, but it is true that just about every program you watch and every commercial and, and, and everything that we see from the world is silently or subtly attacking the Christian worldview. It's just bringing about truths. There's a blog that Tara sent me today that I read, and it was a professor that was writing to, there's a guy named Matt Walsh, and he does his own, it's a Christian blog. And so he posted a letter that he received from this highly decorated um, doctor, uh, who is a professor at a, a university, and wrote him a letter to explain how he was foolish to think that monogamy was for today, that, that humans have evolved past that point of being monogamous, one man, one woman for life, that we were now designed, especially men, were designed to have multiple partners, and that he was in a wonderful marriage that was open. And, and he was going on and on about how this is normal, and this is what he's teaching his university students. And it was just a reminder that this is what's happening. Culture is calling things that the Bible calls clearly sin, things that are good. And it's so important for us to be purposefully growing, purposefully getting in God's Word. And so we're looking at a letter tonight written by a guy named Peter. And by all accounts, he was not brilliant. We don't have anything in his letter or in his life. And we see a lot of his life for us to think that he was a brilliant guy. He was a normal fisherman. He was not highly educated. But God uses this man, because he is faithful to him, to write a letter for us to help shape our worldview, to help us to get back to what's the most important in our lives. And so this we're studying, and it just occurs to me that God works through fools to bring us this glorious truth, things that we need for our lives now. Let's pray, and we'll get into Second Peter. Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. God, we thank you that you gave us 
uh, book, to be our guide. Um, we are saturated with philosophies, with different uh, people vying to share with us what they believe to be true. Uh, Lord, constantly we are presented with worldviews and beliefs that are contrary to your word. And it, and, and it would be so hard for us to navigate this life if it wasn't for a standard, something perfect that we can look to. And so, God, we're thankful that you've given us your word to help us. You've given us your word to guide us, to be our light. And how foolish we are if we do not saturate ourselves in your word um, constantly. God, I pray that you'd help us to see the passion that Peter has for your word and for his own growth and for the growth of his people. And God, give us the same passion to see growth in our lives and in the lives of others at this church. Um, We love you, Father. We thank you that Christ died for us. And, And Lord, I pray we'd see how important it is that we mature in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the author of 2 Peter is obviously the Apostle Peter. He said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. These are some of the final words we have from the great Apostle Peter. And this man would soon be martyred for his faith. But he also says to them in chapter 1, verse 14, that knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, so soon my body will die, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. So it was written by Peter, most likely from a prison in Rome, and it's written from a man who knows that he's very soon going to die. This is his final passionate plea. His date is written in AD 64 to 67, probably closer to 67, and we know he was martyred in around 67 by Nero. The audience of the book in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says, To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. This is a great introduction with these people, great greeting to them, because he starts off saying that he's an apostle and servant of Christ. And in doing that, he's showing his authority, he's showing who he is. And, and as soon as they say Peter's name, everybody in Christendom knows that he is the great apostle Peter. But then he says, to them that have, have obtained like precious faith. And the idea of that is you have the same faith that we have. You're on the same grounds that I'm on. Your faith is just as wonderful and just as precious and just as profitable as my faith. See, it wasn't Peter who is the Pope Peter greater than all others. This was Peter, who was a Christian, and, and the faith of all the believers he was writing to, all these people that are struggling in most likely Asia Minor, they're at the same level he was. They had the same faith he had. So he said, he's writing to the believers there. Um, in First Peter, we saw that he's writing, addressing the strangers in the land, and most likely he's referring to the Jews who were strangers in a land outside of Palestine, outside of the Promised Land. So these Jews were living in Asia Minor, and he was writing to them, but very, very clearly, this book applies to believers today. And I, I think as we read it, you'll see this is one of the most relevant books. It's amazing how you could take, if Peter wrote to our church today, it would make complete sense. The purpose of the book is to warn believers against false doctrine and to direct them toward the Word of God, wherein they will find what they need to grow in faith and knowledge. Okay, so he's warning them against false teachers find that happens over and over again in the New Testament. 
But then he's directing them to the Word of God because in the Word of God, they'll find what they need to grow in faith and in knowledge. This is what they need. Do you know you can look at every book of the New Testament and you could probably simplify the author's purpose in every book down to one of these two things. The authors want unbelievers to be saved and they want believers to grow. And that's it. And if you hear any sermon that is preached that is outside of those two purposes, it's probably not a good sermon. Because that's what the purpose of the Bible is. It's so that unbelievers can know truth, can be saved, can know Christ, can become in a relationship with their Creator. And it's so that believers can grow. And we're foolish if we miss either of those things. As believers, we should want to grow. And so that's why he's writing, so that believers will grow. And he shows them exactly how they need to do that. So how does Peter accomplish this in his letter? How does he accomplish this believers growing? Well, the first thing he does is he emphasizes the importance of growth. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start reading at, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll start reading at verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And so that's important there. He says, God has given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. Okay, we're not lacking for anything when it comes to this area of growth. We have what we need from God. So now it's up to us. Through the knowledge of him that called us unto glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Okay, so where do we find all of this knowledge? Where do we find everything we need for life and godliness? Well, we find it in the great and precious promises that by these you are partakers of the divine nature. Don't, like, think about how great that is. You are a part of the divine nature. I mean, God is inside of you. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. He's part of you now. That's amazing. And so you have everything because you have the precious promises. You're partakers of the divine nature. You've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You have victory over sin. Not just eternal victory over sin, but victory over the power of sin today in your life. Verse 5, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. So do you get where he's going? He's saying you have everything you need, okay? This is where you find it. So, So let's do this. Let's add to our faith virtue. Let's add good things to our faith. Let's, let's see our faith in action to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall never be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if those things be in you, if, if you're adding to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, and if you're adding those things, if that's happening, you're not an unfruitful Christian. That is God's plan for every single believer to bear fruit. And that's how you do it. You just take one step at a time. You add things to your life. You grow every day. That's fruitfulness. He says, verse 9, But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Do you see how important this is? What he's saying is, this is what it looks like to grow. And if you're not doing it, then you've forgotten that you were saved. I mean, you're living completely like you were never a believer. You've forgotten that you've been purged from your old sin. 
if you're a believer, this must be happening, because if not, you've completely forgotten the cross. Verse 10, wherefore the rather brethren give diligence. What does the word diligence mean? Work hard, right? Be persistent. Try hard. I mean, make this a priority. Work at it. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly unto the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here, what he's doing is he's emphasizing the importance of growth. And I don't know how we could read this part of Paul's, Peter's letter and not come away with, I must grow. I must be adding to my faith. I must make sure I'm not one of those people that have, they're blind because they've forgotten that they were purged from the world. Since I need to do something in my life so that I grow. So that's what he does. Then he, then he goes on and he explains the source and standard of truth. Okay, so that's great. We all get that. I mean, that's pretty, pretty standard in the Christian life. I shouldn't just stay where I'm at. I should grow. We're all there. But how does it happen? Where do we find what we need to grow? Well, he makes mention of it, like I said, in verse 3 and 4, where he talks about the divine power that pertains to life and godliness, where he talks about the great and precious promises. But he makes it very clear what he's talking about, starting in verse 16. Verse 16 to verse 21 are some of the greatest verses in the New Testament about the Bible. So he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I want you all to know that we didn't follow some legend. We didn't make up a fable. We didn't tell you just a story. The things about Jesus, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his walking among us for 40 years, all those things, we were eyewitnesses. We were there. It really happened. It's reality. Which is amazing, because if you think like, I'm telling you something that I saw for 40 days. Okay, I was, I was with Jesus. Is there a greater witness than that? We wouldn't think so. I mean, an eyewitness in court is one of the greatest, you know, smoking guns you can have, especially when you have an eyewitness of over 500 men at once, and, and Peter who's with them so much. And I mean, you have the lives of these men completely changed. It seems like about the best witness you could have. But then he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. So he goes, he explains a, a situation that he was eyewitness to where God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Great evidence. And then he says, but we have something that's more sure than that. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place unto the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Where is it? I mean, what is the better evidence than an eyewitness account? The scripture. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And, and we might take this as meaning you're not supposed to interpret it or whatever. What it means is it's not from, from any single person's devising. They, they didn't devise it themselves. They didn't make it up themselves. This was not something that came to them by themselves. Every single prophecy of Scripture was given to them by God wasn't their own private interpretation. They didn't create it themselves. So where did it come from? Well, the prophecy, verse 21, came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What you have in Scripture was given directly by the Holy Ghost. And so you want to know how you grow? 
you grow from the words that God gave you to grow. I mean, two purposes of the Bible, right? To be saved and then to grow, to mature, to become more like Christ. And so we take what God has given us and we grow that way. That's, that's exactly what Peter's saying. He explains the source and the standard of truth. And this is important because look what he does in, in chapter 2. He moves on in chapter 2 and he talks in great length about the danger of false teachers. The danger and the motivation of false teachers. Look at chapter 2, and I want you to see how relevant this chapter is, because you look at the false teachers today, you look at the people that are perverting the message of Christ, you look at the people that are they're giving the prosperity gospel. See how many of these qualities that he describes in the false teachers might describe them. Starting at verse 1. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. In these verses, he begins just by giving some of the characteristics of what it looks like to be a false teacher. He starts out with saying, they're subtle. They privily bring in damnable heresies. The idea of privily there, it's they subtly. It's not something that they just, it's not in your face, but there's just these small, yeah, that's not quite biblical. That's not quite true. There's these heresies that are truly damnable. I mean, they, they really are serious, but they're kind of just slipped under the radar with all of this other truth. There's one uh, analogy that a preacher gave that I've always remembered. What he did is he took, he, he took a, a can of rat poison, and then he co- took a can of Coke, and then he took a can of rat poison that was mixed with Coke. And he said, which of these three is the most dangerous? Well, I mean, <laughs> Coke is not good for you, but probably not as bad as rat poison, Right? But when you look at the rat poison, it's so clear what it is. And so the most dangerous thing is when there's Coke that has rat poison in it and you don't even know it. It's just so subtle. It's sly. It's privily sneaking in there. It is just as destructive as the rat poison, but you don't know it's there. And that's why it's so essential that we know the Word of God, that we know truth, that we're in it. Because if we don't, then it's so easily be carried off with every wind of doctrine. We're reminded over and over again in Scripture, you need to know the Word of God because you need to know truth, because if you don't, then you'll be carried away with all of this false teaching that is so rampant in Christianity today. And you know what? It's always been rampant. There's never been a time in the church where everybody just believed the right thing. Okay? It takes people that are incredibly committed to the Word of God and humble enough to allow the Word of God to change them. It's so important that we are willing to submit ourselves and we are knowledgeable in the truth because there are these false teachers who will subtly... second thing that, that we see is that they're popular. It says, many shall follow their pernicious ways. They're popular. They're not just like some freak weirdo guy who's at the Toronto airport or at Venice Beach or something who's holding up signs and trying to... No, it's not that guy. It's the guy who's slick and dressed up and on TV and everybody loves him because he's got this amazing smile. I mean, it's those guys that you have to watch. They're pernicious ways. They're popular. Many will follow them. It's a problem. And then he goes on and he says that they're 
scandalous. I was trying to find a word that really captured this, but in verse 2 it says, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Okay? So these people who are popular, and they're very subtly bringing in false doctrine, because of what they're doing, the way of truth, true Christianity, is evil spoken of. Now, isn't this true? I mean, there's, there's no person in the right mind that could see what the prosperity gospel is doing in places like Africa and say anything good about Christianity, if that represents true Christianity. Because what they're doing is they're having these people who have nothing, giving away the nothing they have, with the promise that they're going to get a mansion, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's robbing these people of the nothing they have so that they don't have, I mean, the, the scent that they had to buy bread, they no longer have, so they don't feed it. I mean, it's, it's disgusting what's going on. And so anybody that thought that that represented true Christianity would think Christianity is terrible, and rightfully so. And so Christianity is being evil spoken of by these people because of their false doctrine and their false, false teachings, and, and, and they're popular, they're scandalous. Uh, number four, I think in verse four there, it says, and through covetousness, they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you. They're greedy. They're going to use their words to make merchandise of you. They're going to make a profit off of you just because, hey, send in your money and, you know, we'll, we'll pray for you. Or, it'll, yeah, it'll be a seed that's planted and, and it'll grow a hundredfold in your life. And just, just have faith in our ministry send us your check. That's exactly, I mean, basically the same thing is going on then that's going on today. They were greedy. Um, Then he goes on in verse 10, he keeps, because, I mean, he flips between, like, judging them and and characterizing them, but he continues to characterize them in verse 10. He says, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. So he says, these people, another thing that characterizes them is that they walk in the lust of their flesh. Okay, they, they're sinful. They live sinful lives. They, they're, they're lustful. Not only that, it says they despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. When I was thinking about this and how these people apply to our, uh, to our culture today, I thought, you know what, this might be a slightly different group of people because he's talking about them as though they despise the government, so they despise authority. They won't listen to authority. They're self-willed. Whatever I want should happen. And they have no problem speaking evil of dignitaries. In other words, people that that they should show respect to, people that that should have authority, even if they disagree with them, they show no respect for. I think there are a lot of preachers that get up and they do this. I think there are a lot of people that stand up and and they, they act like the government is so evil that you shouldn't obey them at all. Or they stop doing it themselves. They speak evil of the people that they should have some respect for. Peter spoke about this in his first letter when he talked about the importance of honoring the king. We show respect for our government. And and so these people, they have no respect for authority. He goes on in 13, at the end of that verse, he says, um, Spots are they and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. And the idea of that is, they're so wrapped up in this false doctrine and their way of living that they've deceived themselves and they're just, they're just enjoying this terrible, they're sporting this terrible lifestyle with you. They just bring it in your house. They just enjoy it so much. It goes on in verse 14, having eyes full of adultery and cannot cease from sin. Okay, perpetually sinful. Beguiling unstable souls. 
these people, I mean, you see the description of them, how wicked and awful it is. And what they're doing is they're beguiling unstable souls. They're looking for the people in the church that aren't growing. They're looking for the new believers. They're looking for the people in the church that just aren't grounded in the faith, and they're beguiling those people that have unstable souls. They're, they're tricking them. They're alluring them into their false belief. He says, the end of verse 14, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Well, do you remember what Balaam did? He was supposed to be a prophet of God, but he sold out to the opposing king, right? And, and, and he was going to, I mean, it's a, it's a long story, but he was going to make a false prophecy against Israel, and then he didn't, and then the, well, he actually explains it, and, and it's, let's read verses 16 and 17, because they're great. But was rebuked, so he loved the ways of unrighteousness, he loved the money he was making from, from this unrighteous prophecy, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're, they're teaching false things, but, and they're getting money for it, but this is their end. He was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with man's voice for the bad, the madness of the prophet. Forbade the man, man of prophet. <laughs> He's got a dumbass that, that speaks up and corrects him. It's an awesome story. But that is, I mean, that's the end of this. See, we, we look at these people and we think, well, they're succeeding. It's going well for them. Look at these false prophets. Look at how much everybody loves them. This was Balaam for a time. Okay? This was Balaam until a donkey opened his mouth and shut him up. That's the end of these prophets. In verse 18, he concludes, verse 18 19, it says, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, all of, all of what they say, it's empty, it's swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. And, and so they are pulling against things that people want, right? The lust of the flesh. Everybody wants to be rich. Everybody wants health. Everybody wants happiness. And so if they promise those things, if they guarantee you're going to be free from suffering, people want that. And so that's how they get followers, they allure for the lust of the flesh through much wantonness those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. They promise the freedom that they don't have themselves. See, they are slaves to their covetousness, they're slaves to their greediness, they're slaves to sin that they live in perpetually. But they're promising people this freedom in, in these wonderful lies. They can't deliver. It's so important that we know truth because it's so easy to be carried away with this alluring lie. This is the description of these prophets. Um, the fate of these prophets is described in a lot of detail, starting in, in chapter 2, verse 3. In the second part of verse 3, it says, Their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those who should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. 
What he's saying there is he's drawing you back to some of the greatest judgments that have ever, ever happened. He's saying, do you remember Noah? Do you remember who God is there? The one who judged everybody for their unrighteousness. Do you remember the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and how God judged there? This God knows how to deliver the godly like he delivered Noah, like he delivered Lot, even though Lot was vexed. Okay? The same God knows how to judge the unrighteous. He's saying that that these people, someday they'll stand before God. Someday they will be judged for what they're teaching. The fate of the false teachers is not good. Uh, He says that again in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, in chapter 7, verse 17, and then in in verses 20 to 22. Let's look at verses 20 to 22. It says, For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. It's better that they would never have known anything about the truth than them for them to know what they know and then to have rejected it to, to teach these heresies. If you know what it means to never know the knowledge of the truth and then say that there's something better than that, that's a scary verse. There's n- like, I can't imagine anything worse than never knowing about Jesus Christ. There is something worse the worst thing is knowing about Jesus and then teaching a lie. It says, verse 21, For it had been better for them not to have known... Sorry, verse 22. But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow was washed to her wallowing in the, in the mire. This is them. This is the dog who has ate something that is so sick that they vomited. The thing was so disgusting that in the first place it vomited. What was the response? They went to that vomit and they ate it up again. This is the sow who was disgustingly dirty and finally got this water to clean them up a little bit and instead of enjoying their cleanliness, went back straight to the mud and straight to the filth and, and washed again. This is, this is them. Isn't it a vivid picture? This is the false teachers and God will judge them. And he says that very clearly. And so Peter's saying, you need to be warned. Look at, there's a couple other images here of the false teachers. Um, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, it says, they're wells without water. What, what is a well supposed to be? It, it is. It's supposed to be life-giving. It's supposed to be a place that you can go and you can get a refreshing drink of water. But it's empty. There's nothing worse than an empty well, right? There's nothing good in it, but it has this promise of something good, but it's, it's as good as flat ground. It's worse than flat ground because it promises something good. He says then it's, a, it's like in verse 17 again, clouds that are carried with a tempest. And again, that's just, it's clouds, this ominous clouds that look like it's going to rain. And then they're just carried away with a storm. That, that promise of rain, the promise of the storm, the promise of whatever is just gone because they don't fulfill their promises. That is the picture of these false teachers. And so he is trying to explain to them how, how false teachers are motivated, and he is trying to explain to them the fate of false teachers. Finally, in chapter 3, he encourages hope in spite of ridicule. He says in verse, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, that scoffers will come. They will come. There will be people that will scorn what believers believe. Okay, we shouldn't be surprised when we, we open up and we read an article about a university professor who says that Everything that the Bible is built on is foolish. We shouldn't be surprised because scoffers will come. And then he reminds people that scoffers have always come. In chapter 
3, verses 5 to 7, he reminds them of the power of the Word of God. And I think this is important for us because there are times that, I mean, whether we like it or not, there are times that what the scoffers say have an impact on us, right? And so he, he reminds them, he says, For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby that the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What he's saying there is, by God's word, by the word that came out of his mouth, he created all things. He he took the land from the water out, out of his word. Out of his word, he destroyed the earth, okay, with the flood. And then with his word, he will destroy it once again. And so there is power in the word of God. You shouldn't be afraid when scoffers come because you can trust the word and they are ignorant of it. In verses 8 to 10, reminds them of God's promise to come. And then he challenges them to live a life based on their faith. This is kind of the concluding remarks. Look at the question he asks in chapter 3, verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Okay? You know the end of the story. You know that at the end, this world is gone. Christ comes back. He rules and reigns. You know that he's coming back. You know that eventually all these things will be destroyed, that everything here is temporal. You know the end of the story. So seeing that you know the end of the story, that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What should it look like in your life because you know that? Well, he answers a question for us in verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for these things, so seeing that you know that these are, things are coming, be diligent that you may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. He says you should be holy. You should be growing. You should be without spot and blameless. That You should be in peace. That there, you should have a relationship with your father. That's what it should look like because you know these things. It should be different. 748. Okay, let's move on to the outline of the book quickly, and then we'll get to the application. The outline is, is simply chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is a greeting. Um, chapter 1, verses 3 to 21 is guidance for growing believers. Chapter 2 is warning against false teachers. And chapter 3 is encouragement and hope for growing believers. I think the verse that I've chosen as a key verse that I think summarizes the book is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which to stir up your pure minds by the way of remembrance. So I, I want to stir you up. I want you to remember. I, I want you to think about the things that I'm telling you. That you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. I want you to be, to be stirred up. Okay, I want, I want to stir something inside of you. I want to provoke you to live differently, to think differently. Where, where do you find this? I want you to be mindful, constantly thinking about the words of the prophets in the Old Testament and the words of the apostles in the New Testament. He's very clear what he wants, right? He wants you to be so mindful, so saturated in the Word of God that it changes you. He wants them to grow. That's the key verse. So what are the, what's the application for our lives? Well, I think it's very clear, number one, that there is a need for growth. Believers need to grow. Uh, we have everything we need to grow. We have all of these precious promises. We're partakers of the divine, divine nature. We've escaped the corruption of this world. And then there's this just passionate plea in this letter for us to grow, 
Chapter 1, verses 5 to 10 are some of the greatest verses in his passion to see believers grow. And then we see in this, this book a very clear pronouncement of the authority of God's word. You need to grow, but how does it happen? Well, God's word is the authority. Verses 1, 16 to 21, more trustworthy than our own experience. Verses three, chapter 3, verse 2, be mindful of the words which were spoken. Okay? Think of the Old Testament. Think of the New Testament. And then chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, these are some really neat verses um, at the end of the book that he says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, at least half the books in the New Testament, the wisdom that he was given by God, he wrote unto you, and as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the terror of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. That is, that, that's the word of God. He says, Paul, what he wrote, there are some people and they'll, they'll, they're unstable and they'll twist the scripture to mean what they want it, and they're using the scripture for their own devices. Don't be like that. You know better than that. Get into the scripture and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. So he's very clear on that. And finally, the destructive and pervasive nature of false teaching. It's a huge theme in the New Testament, and it's, it's certainly a huge theme in this book. What these teachers are teaching is theologically blasphemous. It's morally bankrupt. Uh, it's as foolish as dogs eating their own vomit. And he says, it will lead to their destruction, so be careful. If we could remember these things, I mean, I know they're, they're fairly simple, right? You need to grow. The Word of God is the authority. You need to be careful of false teachers. Very simple. If we could remember these things and, and live by these things, it, it would really change our lives. See, Peter has one last chance to address these churches, one last plea that he can make to them. He loves these people. And what he does in his last plea is say, hey, listen, guys, look at the word of God. It's your authority. Be careful of false teachers because they're everywhere, because they're popular, because they're subtle. Be careful. He says, look to the word of God and be passionate about your own growth. Try and grow. Do what you need to do to grow. Get into the word of God for yourself. If we could do these things, man, it would make a huge difference in our lives. When I was reading this book, I was really not so much, I, mean, I knew what Second Peter, what was in the book, but I was impressed with the passion that Peter had for his own growth and for the growth of the people he's writing to. And I think we know that we need to grow and we're just not passionate about our growth. And he was passionate about their growth. Maybe we should try and steal some of his passion. We're so easily intimidated by the world. We're so easily distracted by the things in this world. We need to get back to that passion to see ourselves grow.